I thought I would let you know that uh, my wife, my sons, my daughter, and I decided to go from T-Mobile to AT&T because we stopped getting reception in our home. As a result, I was standing in line at the Apple Store uh, last month for, I don't know, three hours or so uh, to get this, which is an iPhone, all right, which is great. Uh, they have this thing on here called Siri, right? Have you seen commercials about this thing where you can, it's a voice interface thing where you can search your calendar, you can search your music just by asking it a question. It's kind of like Star Trek, you know, communicator, like, you know, you can pop it up and say, I want to listen to some John Coltrane. And then next thing you know, your iPhone is playing John Coltrane. Well, it also has this uh, interface with the Internet. So it will actually search the Internet for you. And I don't know, these guys have programmed it with all sorts of responses. And so, of course, people are experimenting with this, and I am too. So here's one conversation I had with Siri. 2001 Space Odyssey, you guys remember that one? Remember Hal 9000? What did what did what did the astronaut ask Hal to do? Open the pod bay doors, right? And of course, the computer's going crazy. It's going lonely. It doesn't want the astronaut to leave, so it's it's not doing what he wants. So I decided to ask my phone. It says, "What can I help you with?" I said, "Open the pod bay doors, please, Siri." And then my phone goes sigh. And then I say again, open the pod bay doors, please. And then my phone mimics the computer from 2001 A Space Odyssey and says in a deadpan voice, I'm sorry, Michael. I'm afraid I can't do that. Are you happy now? <laughs> I was like dying. <laughs> all by myself. I'm just dying right there all by myself with my phone. So I decided to go on to more weighty matters. What can I help you with? I love you, Siri. All you need is love and your iPhone is what my phone says to me out loud. And then I decided to go deeper. Can you love me back? Do I what? Do you love me, Siri? My phone says, I'm not allowed to, Michael. <laughs> These are actual screenshots from my phone. Okay, so then I decided to discuss my sermon with Siri on my phone, and this is what I get. What can I help you with? Siri, do you love Jesus? Siri answers, I suppose it's possible. <laughs> I say, what do you think of Jesus? My phone replies, I'm sorry, Michael. I'm afraid I can't answer that. So then I decide to go one step a little easier. Do you like Jesus? I'd rather not say, Michael. <laughs> so I've got either an agnostic phone or an atheistic phone that doesn't want to piss off its master is, is, is what I'm thinking. I've had other conversations with my phone. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's a weird and wonderful relationship. You know, 
I'm wonderful and the phone is weird. Okay. So the, <laughs> the, the, the question I want to answer uh, tonight is, why do I love Jesus? Why, why do I? Why do I, Mike Sayers, love Jesus? I'm going to start with a story from when my eldest daughter was just a toddler, a wee lass. I'm talking like two, three years old. She talked very, very early. She was a precocious little kid that way, speaking in similes at the age of two. And so uh, I could have these conversations with her. I kind of did the same thing with her that I did with, uh, with my phone. Now that I think about it, boy, that's sick, isn't it? I don't, remember, I don't remember where we were, but one day um, my daughter turned to me and said quite plainly, I love the Lord. And I thought to myself, here's a kid raised in a Christian home, and she's just kind of parroting back the things that she's heard around the house, right? And so I decided to ask her a very, very deep theological question. One, honestly, I think that would stump a lot of grown-ups. And so I asked her, Katina, why do you love the Lord? And then she says, without missing a beat, because he loves me. Oh, I know. It reminds me of a question they put to, I think it was Karl Barth, the great theologian, who when he was asked to distilled down all of his great study of the scriptures. He started singing the little kid's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And so what I thought I'd do, I'm not going to really do a sermon tonight per se, but I'm going to read you a prayer from the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 3 starting in verse 14. This is what he prays for the Ephesian Christians and for all of us, I think. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's a huge measure. And that's a wonderful prayer. That God would give us the grace to know how deeply, how widely, how highly, how He loves us. And it wasn't such an easy route to faith for me as an adult. I wasn't even sure that Jesus existed. I was much less sure that he was the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Even though I was raised in the Greek Orthodox Church, 
I had to decide whether or not those ancient rituals had any basis in historical reality. I've talked about this before here at SCUM, and I've written about it in the book Pure SCUM. But if I'm going to talk about why I love Jesus, I have to start here. Finding out if Jesus was real was a matter of truth for me. It wasn't a matter of affection. I mean, it's stupid to love someone or to, be, or to claim to be loved by someone who doesn't really exist. It would be on the order of insisting that one had a relationship with the tooth fairy or even Santa Claus. When little children talk about these personalities, we smile, we nod, and we indulge their childish imaginations. But if an adult did the same thing, if an adult declared his or her undying love for the Easter Bunny, we wouldn't give very much credibility to anything that person said after that. So the first reason why I love Jesus is because he let me know that he was still alive. I was uh, just graduated from high school. I had been seeking to know the truth about Jesus for a couple years. I really wanted to find out if Jesus was real for all the wrong reasons. I had an agenda, and that agenda included a bunch of things that I knew Christian men and women were not supposed to take part in. I got that from church, at least. And so what I thought I'd do is I'd find out once and for all whether or not Jesus was real. At that point, I wasn't even sure he was an historical figure. For all I knew, there were a couple guys in the ancient Near East who took out some papyrus and a stylus and began just to write it up. And I thought, okay, so who knows about this stuff? Where can I go to find out? And so I figured, well, Christians know about this stuff. They have these things called Bible studies. I really have never studied the Bible very much. Maybe I'll go and I'll read the Bible along with them and study with them in these Bible studies. And so I went. But I went because I wanted to find out that it wasn't true. And for some reason, God honors seeking, true seeking, whether they're for good motives or for bad motives. And so I kept going. I was also checking out other religions and other cults at the same time. I was going to this one series of meetings where the leaders talked about, you know, walking through a rainbow and all these kind of weird spiritual experiences. They were, it was the 70s, you know. I mean, it was, <laughs> you know, I don't know if it was a drug-induced religiosity or whether they were telling me the truth or just trying to get us to go out and sell peanut brittle, which they did later on. That was kind of my, my cue to exit, you know, stage right. But I was seeking. That's what I'm trying to say. And not just in the Christian Bible study arena. So several of us at this Christian Bible study, this Young Life Campaigners Bible study, had just got done playing a game of pickup basketball in the driveway outside this 
guy's house. He was a dentist. His name was Jack Boyd. His wife's name was Gretchen. Uh, they were old, but they uh, had a nice house and a cool basketball court. And, uh, you know, they wouldn't let me argue with them. At, they remember me as the guy who would argue at all the Bible studies. Isn't that funny? Um, so uh, we all got together in this living room. There must have been about 20 or 30 of us you know, post-high school or high school kids, and I'm sitting there, you know, all sweaty. My uh, knees are up by my chest. I'm kind of trying to, you know, grab some room. And it's getting it's cooler inside. The sun is setting on the outside. And all of a sudden they say, well, today we're not going to have our normal discussion. We're going to listen to a cassette tape. You guys know what those are? Okay. Do you know the relationship between a pencil and a cassette tape? How many people know what the relationship... Okay. Because... Yeah, that's right. Exactly. If you didn't, if you don't know that, you'll have to ask somebody who lived through it. Anyway, um, so so they had this cassette tape. They had to, you know, do the pencil thing and put it inside this little boom box. And I'm going, oh crap, this is going to be boring, man. A tape. I mean, not even a video. I just got to sit there and listen to a disembodied voice, you know. And um, so the, he's talking about love. Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. And honestly, to this day, I can't tell you what Bill said. (laughs) I know we talked about love. That's all I remember. So I started doing what I always did in the Greek Orthodox Church. told you guys that about about that a few weeks ago, right? I started daydreaming. It's what I do. I I was well-trained in the liturgical background for this kind of endeavor. And so I just began (laughs) to daydream. And I thought about all the Christians who had ever loved me. And, And it was like... These people were represented by clouds in a clear blue sky. So over here was the cloud with Jack and Gretchen Boyd's name on it, and over here was the cloud with Gary Burke's and Dolores Burke's name on it. And there was a cloud over here with Barb and Dan Kane and Laverne Dickinson and Pat Thompson and Scott Johnston and, you know, Jim Gregory, all these people who had ever given me a ride when I was hitchhiking, gave me a meal, indulged my questions, fed me a meal, whatever. I just, you know... Started thinking about, there, there were these clouds with their names on them. And then, you know, water started coming out of the clouds. That's what clouds do. I thought, no big deal. And the, uh, the, the you know, so the water coming out of the clouds, and it kind of, they all merged. This, all these, this water merged into this giant airborne river. So these little streams from each cloud came, and there was this airborne river, and it was just coming down, descending, and it was headed directly for my head. Now, this is an interesting daydream. Okay, if you guys ever do daydreams, you know sometimes they take on a life of their own. You just kind of go with it. Anyway, the weird thing was I felt the water hit my head. That was weird. It felt like someone was standing behind me with a large jar of water and just pouring it on top of me. But the even weirder thing was it wasn't just going on top of my head and splashing. It didn't feel like it was splashing. It felt like it was going inside of me, like I was hollow. And I was being filled up from the feet on up to knees on up to thighs. I'm going, what is going on? I mean, this had never, ever happened to me before. I'm in a room full of kids. I'm not moving a muscle. I'm not saying a word. And this tremendous miracle is happening inside of me. And it kept filling up, filling up, filling up till it got to the top of my head. When it got to the top of my head... Something even stranger happened. It was no longer coming from up here. 
It was coming from somewhere inside my chest, like a geyser. I mean, I felt like dancing. I felt like screaming. If I had been at a Pentecostal church at that particular moment, I would have been the man of the hour. But I just sat there with my hands folded around my knees. And here's where the miracle happens. The physical feelings really pale in comparison to what happened to my heart. All of a sudden, I knew that Jesus was real. I don't know how. I knew he was alive. Something had happened. I still let out of the same questions. What happens to the people in you know, the darkest, deepest jungles who never hear about Jesus? I still had that question, but I was looking at it from the other side of the wall. I still wondered about how a good God could allow evil and suffering in the world. But somehow I was looking at that from the other side. And things began to change after that. This Bible suddenly became like a new book to me, and I could read it and be excited about it and interested in it. It was like a letter being written directly to me. I would read this prayer from St. Paul, and i go, he's praying for me. Now, this preternatural conversion experience of mine is not the norm. I don't share very often because it just isn't usual. God deals with each of us in ways that are best for us. John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism, said that he experienced a strange warming in his heart when he first accepted God's forgiveness for his life. C.S. Lewis experienced conversion when he got into his brother's sidecar of his brother's motorcycle. They were going to the zoo. C.S. Lewis gets in the sidecar. His brother gets in the motorcycle. They take off for the zoo. They get to the zoo. C.S. Lewis wasn't a Christian when they left the house, but when the time they got to the zoo, he was a Christian. That was it. I personally think it had to do with his brother's driving. That's my thinking. <laughs> it's like, you know, a couple swipes, a little too close for comfort. And you are making sure you have fire insurance. Anyway, but, um, but yeah. Some people feel a huge burden lifted from their souls. Some undergo a great joy. Some simply see things in a new light. And there are some people who are raised in Christian homes who cannot remember not believing. They've always believed. It's just this kind of steady progressive maturity in their belief system that occurs. So there's really not enough that can be said about finding out that Jesus is real. If you haven't done that yet, you have to do it. I mean, you really can't love Jesus unless you found out that he's real. It's the basis for a lifelong relationship of love and respect and trust. It would be ridiculous for me to say that I love someone who didn't exist. After that, this Jesus, who truly does exist began working on my character. He began refining it. He worked on my attitude toward my parents. 
my philosophy of work. My philosophy before that had been one of ease, safety, rest, not of work. He worked on the way I treated my brothers and my sisters, the way in which I spoke to people. He worked in my view of money. And I love him for this. I love Jesus because he has worked on my character ever since I got to know him. As I look back on my life, I could say honestly that I would not be the man that I am today without Jesus working in my life. And I'll tell you why. It's very simple. It's because I would not have wanted to make those changes apart from Christ. I wouldn't have wanted to do those things. The things that Jesus asked me to do, the way he changed my character, was not easy. Nothing, perhaps, can be so emblematic of the change in my character as the way that I viewed women. I was on a quest before becoming a Christian. And a quest was to lose my virginity as soon as possible. And I didn't care, in some ways, who it was or how it happened. Do you hear the problem with that, girls? I mean, I wasn't thinking committed, loving relationship even. I was just thinking having a good time. And that hurts people. It hurts you, even though you don't realize it hurts women if you're the guy and you've got that kind of attitude. I immediately made the decision to stop trying to lose my virginity and rather to maintain it. And the reason for the sudden change? Because now I love Jesus. And I wanted to please Jesus more than I wanted to please myself. I still had curiosity about sex. I still had hormones that were blazing at that age. But now there was something stronger. I loved Jesus more than the thought of getting laid. It was a tension that I lived in. I didn't always like it. But I am grateful to this day that by God's grace, that when I got married, I was a virgin. I always say I was a virgin by default. It's kind of like, if I didn't have the strength, then Jesus made sure I didn't have the opportunity either. (laughs) But Mary has even thanked me for that three decades into our marriage. And I'm grateful to Jesus for that. I'm grateful that my wife is somehow reassured or comforted to know that I don't compare her to anybody else. And so I love Jesus because even though I have messed up many times in many areas of my life, he has taken my character and molded it for the better, which of course brings up the whole forgiveness part 
about being a Christian when you've messed up a lot and you haven't done the things that Jesus would like you to do. And this is another reason I love Jesus, because he always takes me back. He always puts people in my life to prove that his forgiveness is real, not just made up, imagined in my head. People who, even though they may not approve of my actions or even my inactions in a certain given period of time, will let me know that Jesus loves me, that Jesus forgives me, and that Jesus accepts me just as I am, even though he doesn't want me to stay that way. If I told you some of the horrible things that I have said and done to my wife, Mary, you would understand why I love a Savior who would not only forgive me for that, but work in her heart to forgive me as well. And I'm talking about just this week. The fact that Jesus will forgive us and encourage others to do the same thing for us is a reason that we all can praise him forever and ever. Because none of us is perfect. And we sin in a variety of ways. It's amazing how many ways we can come up with. I also love Jesus because of the kinds of people that he has put in my life. What's incredible to me is that they're not the kind of people I would normally have chosen. (laughs) I mean... I grew up with a predisposition toward people who were successful by worldly standards. I talked about that a few weeks ago. From the very first year that I began following Jesus, he opened my eyes to see the wonders he had placed in people I would not normally have given a second glance. I have been in awe of people from all sorts of walks of life. Now, when I graduated uh, college and was starting to teach high school, it was easy to respect the people that I worked with. All of them had college degrees. Uh, many of them had graduate, postgraduate degrees, masters, some uh, PhDs, right? They were great people. But the people I went to church with, they were all over the map. Some of them didn't even have GEDs. And what I found was if they didn't have education... Very often, God had given them great faith, more faith than I had. They didn't have earthly possessions. They had strength of character. They had kindness. They had compassion that put mine to shame. When I worked in the steel mill, I found Christian guys who worked in the steel mill who believed in God with the Ferocity that I frankly just didn't have. When I was a salesman, there were guys, again, some of them uneducated, who could outsell me three to one. 
And not only did they outsell me three to one, no matter how I applied all of my great, vast knowledge and charisma and intelligence and, you know, they could do it better than me and they made more money than me and then they honored God better than me with the money they had. They were more generous to the poor. They gave to charity. And I'm going, you guys are awesome. You're just awesome. I had this thing about businessmen, you know, and about salesmen, and I considered myself somewhat better than them because they were just in it for the money. You know what? The tables are turned. I'm the jerk. You're the saint. It was amazing. When I was with the advertising agency, I found a boss who had more integrity than I had, even though he is really rough around the edges. I mean, he'd be given to all sorts of crass ways of talking about things. And I would never talk like that around the office. But that's, that man had so much integrity. He took over a company that had hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. And because he was a Christian man, and he made sure that he paid back every vendor instead of declaring bankruptcy. And I would have taken the easy way out. He spent a decade paying back people that he owed money to, not even him, but the company that was founded by somebody else. I love Jesus because he's put me with some of the best people I've ever known. And as a result, I am the better for it. And I love Jesus because he's put me here with you guys. I mean, seriously, Scum of the Earth Church is the best gig I have ever had. I love being your pastor. I have, you know, searched in my life for vocational fulfillment for 15 years, and I found it here for the past decade. I love Jesus because I've watched him provide a place for my family to live. I mean, we had just moved to Denver. I think I'd made like $17,000 as the father of a family of four kids with a wife the year before, and I had a chance to buy a house. The seminary was selling off. I remember talking to the bank president. He said, Mike, watching that loan go through was like watching a miracle. I went, I, I, I guess you know what you're talking about, don't you? You see, I love Jesus because he made sure that we had a place to live. I mean, it's right on the edge of a busy street, which I hate. But I love Jesus because we have a place to live. And of course, I love Jesus for giving me a family of my own. I hope that you all can experience that one day. And if you don't, I'm sure that Jesus has something better up his sleeve. But what I want to end with is the reason that I love Jesus, which goes way beyond family and friends and possessions. When I stand before the judgment seat of Christ at the end of the age, I will be there alone. You will be there alone, giving an account for every thought that you've had, for every word that you have uttered, and for every single thing you have ever done or left undone. 
when we stand there. My reading of Scripture leads me to believe that the question that's going to be asked is whether or not we have known Jesus. And to know him, as one song goes, is to love him. And to love him is to want to get to know him. Who do I turn to when everything else turns away? When friends turn away, when family turns away, when colleagues at work turn away, when fellow students turn away, when neighbors turn away, when extended family turns away, who do I turn to? Whom do I turn to when the church, which is supposed to be Christ's body on the earth, ends up being instead an agent of destruction in my life? To whom do I turn when the very group of people who are supposed to represent Jesus to me end up hurting me? Whom do I turn to? I turn to Jesus. Now, I might be wrong. They might be right. But this is the deal. He still lets me turn to him anyway. Whom do I turn to when my children, my parents, my brothers and my sisters, those people who share my own DNA, hurt me, ignore me, or use me? I turn to Jesus. Whom do I turn to when my spouse, the one whom God says I have been made one with. When my spouse deserts me either emotionally or physically. When your spouse deserts you either emotionally or physically after that big, giant church wedding ceremony where promises were made in front of witnesses. To whom do you turn when that person turns away? You turn to Jesus. He has never, ever left me in the darkest of times, even when it's all my fault. And this is where it gets supernatural again. How do I tell you about my alone times with Jesus? How do I express the peace that passes understanding as it comes over me? I don't even understand it. How can I explain it to you? And it's not just times of great trial or testing when my relationship with Jesus is the most precious. I was talking with Jess Craig this week, and she was asking me about those times of worship when I have communed with Christ. Mike, when have you experienced Christ at church? There are times when Jesus speaks to me through a sermon. It could be just one portion of what someone says, and it just kind of sneaks on through all the defenses and just hits me square dab in the heart, and I'm carrying that thing around for the rest of the week. 
That's happened several times. Or it could be during times of praise and worship. I remember one time uh, I was at a conference and there were a bunch of people singing and praising and then they were offering prayer in the front, very much like we do back there, but it was right in the front, right in front of everybody. And so I came up and I got prayed for by this missionary in, uh, from Brazil. And, and I'm telling you, it was just one of those times where I had to lie down on my face on the carpet and have some Jesus and me time. I didn't care that there were all these people around. It was just one of those powerful times when Jesus wanted to speak to me. I don't even know what he said. It was deeper. Sometimes at night, when Mary is sleeping next to me and I'm awake, Jesus feels closer to me than even she does. And she's right there. She's lost in sleep, but Jesus is speaking to my soul in, in, in words that are beyond audible. And he doesn't stop there. He talks to me sometimes even after I've fallen asleep in dreams. He has always protected me from the evil that surrounds me. He has always trusted me with his own thoughts. He is always hoping I will follow his lead. He is always persevering in his good plans for my life, even when I do not persevere in those plans. Jesus never fails to love me. And that is why I love him. Because he loves me.